Reading from Exodus 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And Exodus 27 says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I reckon I copped more than my fair share of nicknames at high school. My surname is George, and, and back in the 90s, George wasn't popular because of a certain little prince. So in high school, kids would call me, this was my nickname at one point, Georgie Porgy Puddin' and Pie kissed the girls and made them cry. How's that for a nickname? Sorry, you can laugh. I've had enough therapy since then. <laughs> or they'd call me... Hey there, Georgie girl. (laughs) From the Seekers, for goodness sake. I didn't even know what they were talking about. Or Georgie Parker, who I think was an actor back in the 90s. Or Boy George. Now, most people weren't being hateful, but I don't think they were being affectionate either. I reckon they were trying to make themselves feel bigger by trying to make other people look small or silly. I I think that's the way it always works at high school, isn't it? You can play with someone's name in an affectionate way, you know, a way that kind of communicates affection, or you can play with someone's name without affection, without them appreciating it, 
And at best, it's rude, but more than likely, it's disrespectful, it's belittling, and it can even be hateful. How we treat someone's name, it shows how we feel about them. And the reason for that is that a person's name and and their identity, they all get mixed in together. If you say the name Kathy, for me, all sorts of memories and and emotions are are connected with with her name and they can't be separated from the person I've, I've known since I was 18 years old, the person I've been married to for 18 years, the person I love. Name and identity, they go together. And they go together even if we don't want them to. My mum came from an abusive family and before I was born, the way that that she tried to deal with that was to change her name. She wanted to turn her back on all of that and on her identity. And so she changed her name to her middle name. Everyone, when I was young, called my mum Anne. But then later on when I was a teenager, she, she dealt with her past. She confronted it. And part of that process for her was, was actually turning back to her real name, Elizabeth. Name and identity, they go together. And so how we treat someone's name, it's connected to, to how we treat them. How we treat someone's name in many ways betrays how we truly feel about them. Now, as Brian said, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments these last few weeks. And, and the third commandment that we come up to today is all about how we treat God's name. Have a look again at Exodus 20, verse 7. God says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. It might seem a bit of a, a strange thing to you that this command's given such a prominent place. After all, the, the Ten Commandments, they're kind of a summary of the entire law. So how is it that this one makes it up into the top ten? And the reason is because how they treated God's name, it would betray how they really felt about him. And misusing God's name, it, it involved more than just swearing. And this is our, our first point, which we're going to explore for a little while. Misusing God's name involves more than just swearing. Let me show you very quickly what misusing God's name looks like in the Bible. So for them, first of all, misusing God's name, it did involve things like swearing, things like blaspheming, and things like cursing. Have a look at Leviticus 24, verse 15. God says there, Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. This is really serious stuff and it's it's so serious it's hard for us to get our heads around. But before we read our situation into this, before we, we, we read into this our place in history, we need to understand their unique place in history. The constitutional basis of them as a nation was that they existed to know God and to take his name to the world. That was the very reason they existed as a nation. You can't be a nation that curses God and does that. Just like it it wouldn't be tolerated if an Australian were to curse democracy and advance the cause of something like ISIS in Australia, 
That can't be tolerated. It can't be allowed to happen. In the same way, cursing God for them couldn't be tolerated. We'll come back to this in our last point as we think through how do we apply the Old Testament laws to ourselves today. But like I said, misusing God's name, it involves more than just blasphemy, more than just swearing. It also involves false swearing or telling lies. So we see this in a place like Leviticus 19 verse 12. God says, do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Calling on God as a a witness and then lying to someone, that's not on for them. That's treating God's name like rubbish. It's misusing his name. Another way to misuse God's name involves misleading people in God's name. We see an example of this in Jeremiah 23, 25. God says, I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name. See, people who claim to be speaking in the name of God, but who are really speaking the delusions of their own minds and are leading people away from God, they're misusing God's name. And there's one more way we see in the Old Testament how they could misuse God's name. That was people who named God as their God, but then their behavior completely contradicted his character. God says that's misusing his name. So have a look at Leviticus 18.21 where we see a really horrible and extreme example of this. God says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, a false god, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. If they claim to be God's people, but they live in ways that just he absolutely hates, then they're seriously misusing his name. Now, do you see what all these different ways of misusing God's name have got in common? They all treat God as if he's insignificant. They all empty him of his glory. And this brings us to our second point and really to the heart of what's going on here. Misusing God's name means emptying him of significance. So blasphemy, swearing falsely, misleading people, behaving awfully in God's name, all of these ways of of misusing God's name, they they betray, betray to us how we really feel about him. They show that we really think God is himself evil or nothing or that he's just like a commodity that we can use to our own advantage. When his name is not precious to us, it's, it's because he's not precious to us. We betray that we don't think of him as glorious, majestic, holy, beautiful. This isn't about God insisting on titles and, and the correct pronunciation of his name in a, in a kind of OCD way. One time I remember I went to this dinner where I sat next to a guy who was Reverend Dr. Something or other and he was quite particular about his name. It was very stuffy and, and formal to me. But this is not like it. This is not God being pretentious and distant from us, although he's got every right to be. 
This is actually God being personal, relational. When God reveals his name, he's revealing his very identity. We heard in the reading in Exodus 3 before when Moses asked God his name, God tells him. He says, I am who I am. That's what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God reveals his name as I am, which is Yahweh. That, that's, that's how it uh, is, tr- is it's translated the Lord, but, it, but it's Yahweh is related to I am. That's God's name. We saw last week that, that Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 34, and what he gets to see is God declaring his name, his identity. The Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God has made known his identity and you can't separate who he is from his name. I reckon if you heard me treating Kathy's name like rubbish, misusing her name, I reckon you'd be a bit concerned for our relationship, or at least I hope you would be. In an even greater way, we can't claim to be close to God and then treat his name like rubbish. This is about being sincere, authentic. You know, this is even more true for us than it was for them gathered there at Mount Sinai. Because we have an even greater understanding of God's name. God has revealed his identity to us in an even greater way than he did to them. Because we know Jesus, of course. Jesus reveals to us what God is like. Jesus is God the Son making God known. Jesus shows us that Yahweh is one God in three persons. Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus shows us that we can be right with God by trusting in his name. So for us, the name of Jesus is precious. And this is true for God as well. Look at Philippians 2 verse 9. Paul writes, Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this brings us to our last point. Those who call on the name of Jesus, they want to see his name glorified. To call on the name of Jesus is to call on God's name and to misuse the name of Jesus is to misuse God's name as well. So I want to finish in a little while. I want to finish in a little bit by thinking about how we can avoid misusing God's name. But before we get to that, we actually need to step back from this commandment for a little bit and take in the bigger picture. And we need to step back, not just from this command, not just the Ten Commandments, I want us to step back and take in the bigger picture of of all of God's commands in the Old Testament. And I want us to ask the question, how do these commands apply to us today? I don't know if you can sense a problem here over these last few weeks that we've been doing the Ten Commandments, 
but I'm, I'm guessing you probably can, even if you don't feel like you can put it into words. Let me have a go at articulating what I think should be the elephant in the room when we speak about God's commands in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. If God's giving the Ten Commandments to the political nation of Israel hundreds of years before Jesus came, why should they apply to us? Why should we even do a series on the Ten Commandments? Do the Old Testament commands apply to us or don't they? Remember, it's not just the Ten. There's something like 612 commands in the Old Testament. Do they apply to us or don't they? That's the kind of tension, the elephant in the room. Have you ever felt like Christians are a bit picky about what commands we follow and what commands we don't? You know, why is it that Christians will happily eat pork but then insist that something like sex outside of marriage is wrong? Why will Christians say that cursing God's name is wrong but no one is saying that the punishment should be the death penalty like we read before in Leviticus? Isn't this inconsistent? Isn't this just pick and choosing whatever we feel like taking from God and isn't it going against what we saw last week? And this is probably one of the biggest topics that a Christian should wrestle with. Not because there's an inconsistency here at all, actually, but because this is the very issue that the Bible itself wrestles with. Read Galatians, read Ephesians or Romans or Colossians or read Acts. It's, every, it's everywhere in the New Testament. This is the issue that the first followers of Jesus had to wrestle with. This is what the first church council was about. And as you tease out this issue, you keep coming to the central message of Christianity, the gospel of grace. So let me just spend a little bit of time teasing out this issue before we come back to talking about how we should not misuse God's name today. So I'm going to tease it out. So in the first years after Jesus ascended back to heaven... Some people were saying, some, some Christians, hey, if we're going to be God's people, shouldn't we be keeping his commands? And the answer, of course, was yes. But then some of them were saying, shouldn't we be keeping his commands as we find them in the law of the Old Testament? And the answer to that was neither yes nor no. Let me explain. The first part of the answer is, we can't. Even the summary of the law, even the Ten Commandments, we can't. We can't keep them. Have you ever put God second in your life? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever lusted after someone you shouldn't have? Have you ever, ever taken something that wasn't yours to take or envied others. Now, I don't know anyone who could honestly say that they haven't broken all of those things that I just went through. That means we've broken at least over half of the Ten Commandments. What the Old Testament commandments they show us so clearly is that we can't keep them. And that's a big problem. So should we be keeping the law in the Old Testament? The first part of the answer is we can't, and that's a huge problem. 
But the good news is, and, and this is where the, the, the gospel of grace comes in, Jesus fulfills them on our behalf. Jesus dies for our failure to live God's way. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus fulfills completely the requirements of the law for us. And he lives as our Lord and Savior, forever shielding us from the consequences of our failure. But then this raises another question. So do the commandments of God in the Old Testament have anything at all to say to us about how we should live? And the answer is, yes, they do. But for us who trust in Jesus, they don't go far enough. Jesus takes us further than the Old Testament commandments can take us. You see, Jesus, he not only fulfills the requirements of the law on our behalf, but he also fulfills the intention of the law. When Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on us, he enables us to go beyond the Old Testament law. He enables us to fulfill the purpose of the law, the intention of the law. The Old Testament looked forward to what Jesus would do. You can read about it in a place like Jeremiah 31, verse 33. God says back then, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. See, for those of us who know Jesus, where is the law? Not on a bit of paper somewhere. It's in our minds. It's it's in our hearts. It's written by the Holy Spirit there. Now, this doesn't mean that we define for ourselves what the law says, whatever we want it to say. If we're guided by God to live out what the law always intended, that's what it means. We're guided by God. If we're guided by God, then we are guided by God to live out what the law always intended. And do you know what the law always intended? That we would love God. And love our neighbor. The Apostle Paul puts it like this a bit bit later in Galatians 5 verse 14. He says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the critically important point for us to get. The Old Testament law, all those commands, they showed the political nation of Israel in their time how they were to love God and love their neighbor in their world, and their situation. But we're not the political nation of Israel. They were unique. They were unlike any other political kingdom that ever existed. And they back then were unlike any political system that would ever exist after them. They were called to be a nation of priests. You know, read Exodus 19. Their mission was to bring the knowledge of God to a a lost, hostile world. And they were to do that as the political nation of Israel. But we, we're not the political nation of Israel. We don't mediate God to the world by being a political nation or by being an organization. We take God to the world only as we take the gospel message about Jesus to the world. It's Jesus who mediates God to the world. It's his death and his resurrection. And this means because of Jesus, 
we're not under the Old Testament law. Galatians 5.18 says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And in verse 22, Paul tells us exactly where the Holy Spirit leads us. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. Do you see that? We're called by Jesus to go beyond the law. The Holy Spirit leads us to fulfill the intention, the purpose of the law. Now, talk to anyone who's been a Christian for more than an hour and they'll tell you that we do this so imperfectly, right? We're sinful. We live in a sinful world. And until Jesus returns, the Bible tells us that the Christian life will always be this real struggle between following the Holy Spirit's lead and following the sinful desires of our hearts. But even though we do it imperfectly, the Holy Spirit really does lead us to love like Jesus loves. But coming back to our question, don't be too intimidated by this diagram. But if we're not under the Old Testament law, why is it that the Ten Commandments feel like they apply directly to us? I mean, go through them all and they they seem to apply to us. And the reason is because they're a summary of the law rather than the law being applied to their context. And so they have this timeless quality. It's, It's easier to see how they reflect God's character and God's character never changes. But even still, we're not under the Ten Commandments. We're actually led by the Holy Spirit to exceed them. Let me give you a couple of examples. So they were called not to murder. But where does the Holy Spirit lead us? Well, he leads us to not even hate. He leads us to bless those who curse us, to turn the other cheek to those who would strike us, to pray for those who would persecute us. He leads us to love even our enemies. See, that Jesus takes us far beyond the Old Testament commands to their intention. And what about... An Old Testament command like don't eat pork or you know, don't eat prawns. What do we do with that? Well, again, Jesus takes us far beyond this command to its intention. In the nation of Israel, the, the whole food law system was about being holy. It was about being different to the other nations in order to maintain a, a cultural distinction. And the reason for this was so that they would, they would stand out in a whole heap of ways so that they could mediate God to a lost, hostile world that had forgotten him. But now, God mediates himself to us in Jesus. Now he calls people not into a political nation, but into the kingdom of God. We express our distinction by naming Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, and by living with him as our Lord and Saviour. That's how we express our distinction. Now, this is not picking and choosing commands. This is about knowing God and knowing what he's done in Jesus. That the requirements of every Old Testament law are fulfilled in him and the intention of every Old Testament law is fulfilled in him as well. And as we trust Jesus, he changes us 
so that we start to live out the intention, the purpose of the Old Testament law in our own lives. We love God and we love others. So the real question for us is this. Who defines love? Now, if, if our answer to that question is not God, then that's a problem and it's actually a bit scary. Because we're limited and we're sinful. And the love that, that we come up with ourselves will at best be limited. But actually, often it'll be twisted. And this is where the commands of God and all scripture comes into play because through them, God is revealing his unchanging character. And through scripture, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us what God loves and what God hates. Now, I know that is a major diversion, but it's really critical for us to get. And it's a really central, a tough issue to wrestle through, but it's so central for us to get as Christians. And as our society gets more and more biblically illiterate, We really have got to get our heads around this because more and more you'll hear people saying, how come you just pick and choose commands? That's not at all what we do. Okay, so let's return to the third command and see ways that the Holy Spirit leads us to not misuse God's name and instead to love God and love people. So first of all, how do we avoid misusing God's name by blasphemy? Where does the Holy Spirit lead us in this? It's so common, you know, these days to hear, oh my God, or or Jesus Christ. Uh, And and when we speak of God like this, it it really betrays how we really feel about God. It shows that he's unimportant to us. He's insignificant to us. And our our kids are so saturated with this, you've got to feel sorry for them, that, that we really need to gently help them here. A friend was telling Kathy and I about how her daughter you know, coming back from kindy, would be saying, oh my God, all the time. And the poor thing just doesn't realize what she's even saying because she's surrounded by friends. Maybe your kids have been like that too. It's, it's probably going to happen. So it's our job as parents, if we're a parent, not to jump on them, but to use this as an opportunity to help them understand that he really is our God. And so for us, we really do need to treat his name with respect and with love. But what about when you hear other people treating God's name like rubbish? You know, personally, I find it much harder to be around people and and just listen when people are saying, Jesus Christ, than when they're using the F word. Because it hurts a bit. Because I wish they knew just how much Jesus loved them just how much he's done for them. I wish they knew that with the very breath with which they're trashing his name, it's given to them by him as a gift. And I want to see his name glorified, not treated like rubbish. Now, I reckon if you're going to be around someone like, who, who is, is speaking like that quite a bit, the right thing to do is, is at some point to let them know that when they misuse God's name like that, it actually hurts. You know, that it'd be like you misusing the name of their spouse as a swear word, but even worse. Probably it'll be an awkward conversation. But actually, if we're sincere and and not self-righteous, I reckon we're giving them the opportunity to get to know us more. But more importantly, we're actually opening, opening up a conversation 
where we can point them to just how glorious God is. Some people aren't going to change, partly because it's a habit, sometimes because they quite enjoy provoking us, and we still need to love them, but it's still an opportunity to point point people to Jesus. Because where the Holy Spirit takes us, where the Holy Spirit leads us, is not just to see God's name not misused, but to actually see God's name glorified, to have that desire. The Holy Spirit leads us to treasure Jesus' name and to do that even when it's unpopular, even when it costs us. In Hebrews 13 verse 15, the writer talking about persecution says to these people who have been persecuted for following Jesus, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips, that openly profess his name. The Holy Spirit leads us not to curse God, but to openly praise his name. What about false swearing? How do we avoid using God's name by false swearing? You know, where does the Holy Spirit lead us in this? Well, Jesus tells us if we belong to him, then it's like we're always under oath. We're always to tell the truth. The Holy Spirit leads us to always to care about the truth without even invoking the name of God. And we're going to leave this one because we'll come back to it next year when we return to this series and look at uh, not bearing false witness. What about misleading people in God's name? How do we avoid doing that? Where does the Holy Spirit lead us in this? Well, God warns us in Scripture that there'll always be false teachers who twist things and mislead people in God's name. There are heaps of people who speak the messages of this world, but, but then try to sanctify it in God's name. They dress up the gods of our culture, and they try to claim that they're the true God. You'll find people who say things like, even like this, God wants you to be rich in this life. God wants you always to be well, never sick, to be healed. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be the best version of you that you can be. God wants you to be true to yourself, to listen to your heart. Now, God does want us to be healthy and happy and the best version of ourselves and to be richly provided for, but not necessarily in this life. Because there's something far greater that he wants for us. And that is to know him to be saved. And in this life, we're not promised health or happiness or self-realization or riches or any of those things when we follow him. We're promised forgiveness, salvation, purpose. We're promised Jesus himself, but we're also promised along with those things, suffering and hardship. The Holy Spirit leads us to help each other recognize false teaching. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. You know, there are churches and leaders who claim for God what he doesn't claim for himself. And the Holy Spirit leads us to call this out. But more than that, to speak the truth in love, to help prepare each other to resist lies about God. Finally, 
how do we avoid misusing God's name by behaving in a way that contradicts him? Where does the Holy Spirit lead us in this? Well, do you know who hates hypocrisy more than anyone else? Jesus, right? In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us to beware of people who who speak flowery God talk and pray impressive prayers, who look religious and generous, but who are naming God simply for their own same their own name's sake. Have you ever met someone like this, people like this? Is it really Jesus' glory they're seeking? Or is it their own appearance that they care about? Are their actions behind closed doors pure? Or are they actually dragging God's name through mud? The Holy Spirit leads us to care about what God sees and, and not what people sees. The Holy Spirit leads us to be sincere, not performers. He leads us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, revered, glorified be your name, not our own names. Now, in the end, the, safe, the way to safeguard our hearts against misusing God's name, it's to want to see Jesus' name glorified. That's exactly where the Holy Spirit leads us. And the more we see just how precious Jesus' name is, the more we see just how precious Jesus is, then of course we're not going to be at risk of misusing God's name. Let me pray for us. Father, you are truly glorious beyond what we know now, beyond what we will ever fully see. When we see you face to face, still you are more glorious than than we can comprehend. Father, your name is wonderful and and in it you've revealed who you are, the God you are. Lord, um, we pray that we would be a people who, who see just how precious you are and in our lives live that out. When we name your name, when we claim that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, Lord, help us to value him like we should and shape us, lead us by your Holy Spirit to fulfill your intention of the law, to love you and to love those around us, not according to how we think we should love or how we define love, but according to how you define it and how you show us in Jesus that we should love. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.